You're listening to the Try and Tackle podcast with your host, Province Sports Mobile Editor Patrick Johnston. Well, welcome to the Try and Tackle podcast. It is Thursday, August 25th. Patrick Johnston here, as always, and joining us this week to talk pro rugby, talk sevens, anything else that's on their mind. Curtis Reed, of course, from This is American Rugby. Curtis, you're in Seattle. How are you? doing well literally have your pants on it's very exciting i just i i put pants on yeah it's a, it's a thrill and in new york i assume well dressed as you would assume one would be for a, a man of his ilk martin pangeli hi hi oh uh, yes I'm, I'm in the office so i'm fully dressed very nice um martin by the way great to have you back it's been a while has been a while yes but nice to be back yeah, uh, guys, you know, lots happening. As I said, uh, you know, sevens, obviously, at the Olympics, uh, you know, the, a big, big story. I think everyone coming back feeling like that was a big, big deal. It was a big breakout. And, of course, all this pro rugby noise out of it, everything seems to be buzzing. Uh, the word I was thinking as I was coming into the studio was uh, extraordinary for the summer. I don't know what you guys think. Martin, you got a word to describe the last month or two in, in, in North American rugby? Um, well, I can't use extraordinary because you just did, so uh, <laughs> I'll say unusual. Unusual. And Curtis? Uh, groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Nice. Uh, Curtis, I'm going to start with you. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Curtis, let's start with you. Uh, let's look at the sevens, how things went. Uh, you know, obviously disappointment for the men, uh, disappointment for the women, but... You know, the game was discussed, the game was on TV, and there were a lot of articles written from places that you don't usually think about that were extolling the virtues of Rugby Sevens as Olympic sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's hopefully, when we look back in a year's time, going to be the net positive, is that there's a lot of fans that come as a result of it. Um, it is a bit of a shame that there isn't some sort of product immediately after to kind of capitalize on it. You know, when the women's soccer team has had success it's bled over into the NWSL and, and WNBA usually gets a boost from doing well. So it's too bad that there isn't anything to kind of capitalize on that straight away. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, definitely a boost. Uh, even though the, at least the men's team underperformed, there, there's still a lot of good that came out of it. On our side of the ledger, the, you know, the Canadian team obviously built lots of buzz. People were excited. You know, we, we had a great Olympics in Canada in general. No, uh, no, no Team GB quality. And Martin will come to you in a second. But on the whole, a great event for Canadian women's rugby for sure. I think we're we're sort of going to be interested to see how things play out on the men's side of the ledger. There's new squad and and everything. But yeah, big event. People enjoyed it. The number of people that kind of came to me again like they did during the Canada Sevens and said, wow, that was really fun. That's a great event I really, or a great sport. I really enjoy it, is notable. And I know our Ed Willis, who is covering uh, the Olympics for the our, our, our newspaper chain here, who normally works at the province and got to do some of the rugby stuff, he said, you know, basically everybody came away saying that was the breakout sport of the Olympics and, and, and it was a huge event, certainly from our side of the table as well. Martin, uh, you know, from your standpoint, obviously Sevens is a known thing. Uh, in the UK, but you know, as as 
as ever the interested observer from the American side of things now, what was your feeling out of it, both, uh, you know, in, in terms of the North American uh, viewpoint and, and maybe a bit more of a global sense as well? I thought, I mean, I thought the British view was interesting in a way for me when I was, I was looking on in one way because uh, it's um, perhaps slightly, slightly unfair to say it, but I was watching a slightly naughty illegal feed of the BBC <laughs> where I was and the BBC commentators, they had Eddie Butler, who was their regular 15-a-side commentator, and they had Sir Clive Woodward. And they, to be probably unfair from a standpoint of having watched the Sevens and know quite a bit more about Sevens and have written about Sevens, they had not watched much Sevens in the past four years or really uh, seemed to treat it as the sort of almost semi-separate sport it's become. So there was a lot of surprise about how good people were. A lot of surprise about the USA team. How <laughs> they I'm sure they were, in, they were introducing people like Nate Ebner and Carl and Isles to their home audience, possibly for the first time, and thinking that way. But um, there was an air of the sort of old-fashioned sevens is a fun thing you do at the end of the season to the British uh, commentary of it. On the, other, on the flip side of that, the Great Britain team itself got to the final, um, was as close to a scratch old-fashioned team as you'd get, really, these days, I think, because especially compared to the rest of the Great Britain Olympic programme that did so well, there's no money being spent on the Great Britain Sevens programme, there's no focus on it, there's no exclusive training, which would be in cycling, running, etc. Et so there was, was that. Uh, the, Brit <laughs> the British take on the whole thing was slightly strange, I think. I think also a lot of people regretted that it wasn't in four years ago in London when they could have got much, much larger crowds to Twitter. Imagine. But looking on as a global global observer, if you can call me that, who now has lived in the USA for four years and covered the USA game, I thought the, the US, the men's and the US and Canada and the women's came over extremely well. And really, though they didn't proceed to get to the final stages, they really showed strength. And the whole tournament showed the strength of World Sevens that the Olympic inclusion has driven. It's interesting you mentioned the coverage thing. We had uh, we had a dedicated broadcast crew for the the women's side of things because of course we had the women's team in the event. And then when it switched over to the the men's side, the first day they actually went the uh, you know the the Canadian broadcast actually picked up the Butler Woodward. Uh, commentary and of course you know i mean i think i tweeted about it i said why are we getting these guys i mean world rugby has these fantastic collection of commentators where the heck are they because we'd had we'd had doses of keith quinn and martin gillingham um during the women's event you know in, in little spots here and there and quite clearly somebody kind of said hey tsn hey cbc these guys aren't that great and the guys on the world feed are way better and all of a sudden for the second two days we had the world feed broadcast which was you know, I mean, Keith Quinn has his enthusiasm and has his moments, but but really, on the whole, he knows who the players are and he knows what's going to happen and he knows how to call it. And and uh, so, from that standpoint, it was quite it was quite funny to watch. But you know, the I like how you describe Martin the, the 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 British team as being that old school. Hey, let's get a bunch of guys together and see what happens because it really was that. And you know, it, it, it was. It was interesting, of course, because Mike Friday had been quite outspoken about how that team was assembled, not criticizing the coach, but you know, having his shot at administrators, which I feel feel like is almost like a a secondary sport in British rugby. But uh, you know, it was it was an interesting approach, and and uh, you know, I, I kind of found myself thinking, what is Mike Friday thinking now, now that his team didn't get make the medal round, and and the Eng the British team almost won gold. Well, he's probably he's probably as conflicted emotion as 
and I was supporting Eagles, not the British team. Yeah. Um, it's a world, you know, it's a world globalized sport, isn't it? I mean, I think um, I know as a writer, the Sevens is not on the London Sports Desk's radar every year of the World Series, unless you can come up with a good sell. Yeah. Um, player. So if you've got Nate Edna coming from the Patriots, yep, that's interesting. If you've got Carl Miles, fastest man in the world, yep, that's interesting. But your average sevens event, they're not particularly well, Australia desk a bit more because they cover New Zealand, Australia, and here it's me, so we can cover it. Yeah. I think it's a British um Sevens is not got that natural space in Britain that it maybe has in other countries around the world that have taken to it so well for the Olympic Club. That said, like I said, you could you could probably have sold eighty thousand Curtis, where do you think uh, you know where where do things go from here? You know, Mike Friday, as far as I know, his contract is is up. You know, will he be back? Will do you think he'll end up somewhere else? Well, from what I understand, it goes through December. Okay. So, um, I mean, that may be incorrect, but that's what I've been led to believe. Uh, so he'll at least be through. Um, you know, those first two stops. And then it's hard to see him stopping halfway through. It would not surprise me, though, if he did decide to step down that assistant coach Chris Brown would take over since he's been the day-to-day guy in Chula anyways. Um, and he's got a great sevens brain. So, you know, it's really interesting where to go with the sevens program now. I think so much energy has been put into getting to the Olympics and that tournament and those what essentially boiled down to three matches – and, and then to have them underperform and miss out on the quarterfinals, I think left a lot of people scratching their heads at the missed opportunity. And if they had made the quarterfinals and put in a good showing and played well, like they did in pool play for the most part, then that would have generated some noise. You saw the women's team actually generate some noise. Like, hey, these girls can play. This is good. Um, but you didn't really see that on the men's team just because the results weren't there. And when you're in the United States, and I don't remember what the final tally was, but when you 40-something gold medals, I don't know if someone wants to correct me, whatever, but when you have 40-something gold medals and you have a team that doesn't make the quarterfinals, it's really hard to get a lot of energy behind it. I think there's this idea that, yeah, rugby's a cool sport. It was on TV. We've made it to this point. But if you're the average person, unless there's like a true – kind of underdog story where they, they really succeed. It's just like, okay, we fielded a team and we did okay. Just like field hockey. The women were doing well. And then when they crashed out of the quarterfinals, you never heard about women's field hockey again. So I think where we're kind of left is, you know, how do we capitalize on the Olympics when it didn't play out the way we thought it would? And I think that's the big question that still needs to be answered. And whether that, you know, the first real test of that is going to be in November when the Eagles play to see if more people uh, tune in or not. And then, you know, but in terms of just overall, it was a huge missed opportunity and, and something that I think leaves a lot of people wondering where do we really go next when if we had done well, the, the plan would have been pretty clear. I suppose too. I mean, when we talk about missed opportunity, it's it's the idea of having Nate, Nate Ebner walk around the NFL with, say, a bronze medal around his neck. Yeah, absolutely. Or even I think, you know, pushing towards the end. I, it's 
Yeah, a bronze medal and medal would have been great, but they the storyline that was pretty much created out of the U.S. men's team, and I should take a moment to really applaud the women's team for the way they competed. Um, they were lucky not to make the medal, unlucky not to make the medal round. So they really competed hard. They deserve a lot of credit. But the men's team, the narrative that comes out of the Olympics is Nate Ebner played, the team didn't do well. So it's hard to, you know, kind of take that that going forward. And you're right, you know, if Nate Ebner had played and the team did well, I think that would have generated a lot more momentum than what we saw. And, and I think what we saw after the results came in was, okay, we had this big buildup to Rio, it's over, everybody exhaled, and a lot of the energy maybe dissipated a little bit. Ironic that, I guess, Ebner scored the try that almost got them back into the quarterfinals. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions about selection or where was the team overtrained. You know, there's a lot. The, you know, the autopsy is going to be really interesting on this whole thing. <laughs> well, I would say it's fair to say that they lost to a very good Argentina team. I mean, that, that Argentine team impressed a lot that you know the game against team gb was is one of the all-time classics i mean it was kind of a ridiculous game even though even though the score was so low um you know that was a fantastically good team that they lost to and you know that's the usual there's no shame in losing there but yeah in terms of the broader picture it was heartbreaking really for the yeah, Americans. yeah. And i don't think you can really argue with the results argentina was fantastic Fiji was amazing um but look at their result against Brazil. You know, how many more tries could they have shipped in? All they had to do was get one extra conversion somewhere, one extra try, and they would have made it yeah. <laughs> at the expense of New Zealand. So uh, there's definitely some questions. I do have to say, overall in America, you know, I had friends tune in to watch Fiji in the final, and they were like, this is amazing. Um, if you're talking, talking about an, under, an underdog narrative or a good narrative that came out of it, I mean, Eagles' win would have been best for the men, but the Fiji win played very well over here, I think. It would have been our first gold medal in any sport ever. And, uh, Absolutely. And the kneeling. It was a big global story. It brought attention to the sport, which means it brings American viewers. Not as men. That's actually just from my chair, guys. How did that uh, gold medal game get played on NBC? Here it was on the regular feed, and we got a lot of Rugby 7s. We had a great – we had – wall-to-wall coverage from from the cbc but then they also had brought in the two uh the two sports channels who have multiple channels on on our cable packages so we had wall-to-wall sports for the last two weeks which was fantastic but we also that meant we get we got the full final live uh and and that was a really great thing how how did that play uh martin you're saying you know, basically it was a good good thing like nbc showed it that kind of thing um yeah i mean i'm talking about the aftermath of it and the effect Right. I was in the in this world of uh, of the internet. I was in a holiday house in Massachusetts with no access to NBC, which is why I was watching on a website. Oh, okay. So coverage. Um, but the yeah the the I thought the coverage, the American coverage I read on Fiji and Sevens rugby was very, seemed to me very effective. I don't have other other organizations reading figures, but you know in in England again, Sevens is a known thing. Fiji G being good at sevens is a known thing. So it's taken a little more for granted. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, it's like, wow, what a good story. These guys from a tiny island that were <laughs> too cynical journalists but got conveniently hit by a natural disaster recently um, came through and won a 
their first goal in any sport ever and were, you know, while winning it, absolutely brilliant. I think that played pretty well. Well, and they also had all the classic, you know, shops closed for the next hour, the finals on, that kind of thing. I mean, there were lots of images of that. And some of the videos you saw, I mean, Ben Ryan share has, you know, been very proud of, of what he's been able to accomplish with that nation and very proud to share what it all meant to that country and you know the videos he shared for instance of them going into the stadium where it was already full and there were still people on the street uh you know and i saw the the speech his he gave a very nice speech which he started off by the way crediting the guys who didn't make it and then the fijiana and then briefly talked about his own team it was it was quite a remarkable thing but trying to say listen this is about everybody uh you know and i, I feel like there was quite a lot of sort of pick up on that i mean i i don't know if in canada necessarily we had quite the same kind of this is the first ever first ever medal for fiji that was more like this was a really fun tournament and people really enjoyed the sport curtis what from your chair what was the you know what was the reaction like in i mean you mentioned that people watched it but what was the reaction from the sort of the broad american media on in terms of just watching the sevens and seeing fiji win yeah i think this is one of the instances where i wish that even though I have international experience, sometimes I wish I, I was dual hatted because it's the American perspective on the Olympics, I think is so unusual to the rest of the world. Um, I, to be honest, I didn't watch it on TV. I watched it online. So mm-hmm. I watched the world feed as well. Um, just because it was much easier for me to watch online than to sit down and watch NBC. So I don't think it was aired on NBC. I think it was aired on one of the cable stations. Um, and it was aired, you know, during the middle of the day. So unless you were like an Olympic gung ho person, you probably didn't really watch. So, um, but that said, the narrative of Fiji winning their first medal really resonates. And that definitely got some playtime. I think the overall takeaway from Fiji winning is that sevens and rugby can be exciting. So they may, people may be more inclined when they see rugby on TV, whether it's Vegas or some other thing, if they can get rugby on ESPN, people may stop and actually watch now where in the past they may have just moved on. So I think that's the big kind of takeaway, especially if they see Fiji on TV, they'll be like, Hey, these guys were awesome in the Olympics. So we'll stop and watch. I noticed, uh, at NBC, I must have, I must have watched an NBC stream at some point because I noticed adverts for the uh, Premiership coverage starting on the third of September, which is it's not Fiji Sevens and London Irish against Newcastle on a Wednesday night in January are not the same thing. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was interested. By, I was interested. It was there. And I'm interested showing it, and I was interested in the presentation, which had someone who sounded like Jason Statham on some, some aggressive drugs. <laughs> Growling out what was coming and showing big hits more than tries, which is not a very English presentation, but you know, that was English club rugby being presented on the Abbott break between Olympic sevens, which is new. That's a new thing. So it's the, it's the effect of that coverage. that advertising now. Yeah. I think because rugby is new to a television audience here in the U S it's very similar to the way soccer was marketed early on in the early days of MLS. I think there was a lot of, explaining or you know something to try to hook people in to watch rather than letting the sport explain for itself and i think that as time goes on this you know the the coverage and the emphasis on hits will maybe be lessened as more people get to know the game 
up here it's been interesting of course now we we get all our um we or how should i say we love to say hey look our medalists are home and we always have big sort of news events as they arrive at the airport and of course for the first time it's involved rugby players and uh you know the 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 fact that the women are from all parts of canada i mean yes they're based in victoria but they're from all over the place has meant that that there have been stories both in local papers and on you know tv tv stations talking about this team that achieved what they well they went to win gold but they achieved a medal they achieved you know the minimum what they hope to get and and that this is a buzz it's, it's going to be the feeling is it's going to be like what happened when the women's soccer team won bronze at the 2012 olympics in london that there, there will be a knock-on effect that uh people will say hey that's a really cool sport and hey look it's something that i can do um and i think that's something that rugby canada is really trying to push now and i know that um you know they have their critics but that they've been saying listen come try rugby they they literally have a website called tryrugby.ca like it, it, it's it's very much a case of we want to get people on the field and say hey listen all that matters is that you're giving it a go um they you know megan lucan who 18 months ago was playing collegiate basketball and had you know, not a whole lot of sense of what might come next, but, you know, she could have gone and played professionally in Europe and she said, no, hey, I'm going to go try to make the Olympics. Well, now she's a bronze medalist. And I think that's going to be the best recruiting tool that Rugby Canada could possibly have imagined. Now it's about both the national union and the clubs as well, being ready to with doors open saying, hey, we've got these people coming in. They want to try stuff. The only worry I have from that standpoint is that we're still so focused on 15s that people walk in the door and they'll say, oh, yeah, sevens, we do that next summer. And that people won't be sticking around for that long. But we'll see what happens. I think there's certainly interest at lo- locally. I know on the schools level, they're talking about trying to get some more sevens going. And I know that there's some interest in the clubs. And we'll see how it plays out. But to me, that's going to be the biggest story going forward. Um, guys, let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, lots of chatter about pro rugby. Obviously, pro rugby, the league finished its first season. Martin, I know you've talked to Doug Schoninger a fair bit, and Curtis, uh, you know, you've talked to guys there as well. Uh, Martin, let's start with you. What's what's sort of the feeling now? I guess almost a month out from the end of the first season. Um, I think it was a success. I, I'd I've heard uh, estimates of how much it cost Doug to put it on, and um, they make me wince. It's not even my money, <laughs> uh, but I think it was a success. They They've learned a lot. They've done some good things, done some bad things like anyone. But I think the main salient point is they made it to the end of the first season. They played the whole season. Um, and the stuff that they put out on social media channels looks good. It doesn't look, it's not trying to be anything it's not, which is a great uh, pitfall in such things. It looks like a good first season. I've been talking talking to Steve Lewis. Steve, obviously, I know well in New York. It's um, That's the impression they've given me. They're not making grandiose claims about what they've achieved, but they're happy the first season. Um, as always, the question is, no, I hope to find out more in the next one. Uh, Curtis, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, now we've, we've obviously got, you know, it worked. Um, every, as we noted the last time out, everybody got paid. Uh, and now there's some, you know, sort of some eyes poking over from overseas. How do you think that dynamic might influence? And Martin, feel free to jump in on this one as well. How do you think that might influence their thinking going forward? You know, I don't know that it changes much. Um, 
I think because they've done their homework and they've taken the right steps that they need to succeed. I think number one being the time of their season. Um, there's no snow in New England in April, hopefully, you know, never yes. know, but, but you know, April through, through July. Um, that's number one. So I don't really think it changes much. I think the plan from what you've kind of heard is if venues work out, they would like to add you know, two or three teams on the East coast. And as we've talked before, you know, if, Rugby Canada signs off. They'd love to add a couple of teams up in Canada. So I really don't – what the Pro 12 may be trying to do – might maybe try to do in the U.S. I think is really different from what Pro Rugby is trying to do. In one, Pro Rugby is really just trying to grow a homegrown league staffed with homegrown players that maybe don't play during the traditional rugby season for what you'd have in Europe, whereas the Pro 12 – I'm not sure that they're going to use Americans for one. And then you see them really just kind of try to come in and make a big splash rather than grow organically. So to me, the two organizations could exist at the same time and not really impact each other that much. From a playing standpoint, it's interesting to note that, of course, Canada has its Canada A tour on right now, and it's sort of built around a a squad, which I still haven't been able to confirm, but they have some guys that are going to be based in training in uh, Victoria to sort of build the kind of development squad almost. And, uh, but the, the, the truth is, is that the quality is almost there from a Canadian team. But as you said, Curtis, I don't know if, if they were to put a Canadian team in the Pro 12, I don't know who would stock that team. But from a financial standpoint, and Martin, you and I were just talking about this before we went on air, it, it would be a rather crazy project, wouldn't it? Yes, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I just checked up on uh, the, the Connacht home gate we mentioned. They say it's 5,000. It still doesn't make any sense. The, the crowds in Pro 12 aren't that big. Pro 12 itself relies on TV money for not very large viewer figures at all. It's unfair to call it a basket case of a league, but it's not a big league, and it's an enormous leap of uh, faith and imagination to see it working with East Coast. It's you know, I think – I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut Martin off there. But, yeah, I think this is really just the Pro 12 being desperate and searching for an easy way out, <laughs> you know, as sad as it sounds. I think when you really need to look at the Welsh Union or uh, even Ireland to a certain extent, they need to accept reality. Uh, of where they are at and what they're capable of. And I think trying to come to America and the idea that we'll expand our television money is a little ludicrous. So, and it's not really well thought out. (laughs) So anybody who sits down for five minutes and really thinks about it is going to realize that this is a terrible idea financially. Um, So it's just kind of sad to see, I think, the Pro 12 do this to themselves you know could they try to make the best of the bad situation that they're probably in going forward or are they going to crash and burn and blow the whole thing up uh, the thing that caught me and martin you touched on it was exactly the, the sort of the tv issue and you know something like three quarters of the overall budget of the pro 12 is paid for by their tv contract which isn't a huge one to begin with and the idea that they're going to come over to the u.s or canada and have by the mere na- fact of having teams here means that they'll all of a sudden be able to sign some kind of lucrative television contracts. It's just such pie in the sky, 
pie in the sky stuff. I found myself thinking about, uh, you know, Martin, obviously this predates you and probably completely surprises you. But the fact that the CFL had teams in the U.S. 20 years ago and they tried an American expansion experiment and it failed miserably. One, because fans didn't know what this was there was sort of an assumption well hey football fans are just football fans and they'll go watch football well canadian football obviously close but not the same thing as the nfl and it's the, the reality is the standard isn't as good and and two they they went into bad stadiums they had bad owners they kind of went where they could they kind of felt like well like I said, fans will just show up. They never really got a proper TV contract in the U.S., and this was a sport that Americans basically knew and they couldn't get TV money for, and that was, you know, in the days when they were still, you know, ESPN still had lots of air. I mean, they have lots of airtime now, but they had more, you know, they still had to fill airtime then, and ESPN wasn't all that interested, and the ratings were terrible. CFL has air, you know, does get games aired in the U.S., but it's on minor channels, and it's not worth a lot of money. So if you're trying to sell a whole new sport involving teams from completely different country, it's just such a unbelievable you know, f leap of reality, I think, that you're going to be able to make it work and certainly make it work quickly enough that it will pay off in the long run. Yes, basically. <laughs> I, agree, I agree with you there. Um, the other thing to remember is that, you know, USA Rugby is given a, a sanction to pro rugby. That's where it's best. It's yeah. Eggs are. USA Rugby's eggs are where world rugby's eggs are. So different competitions coming into one country, even a country or two countries as big as USA and Canada. Unprecedented and very unlikely. Uh, last question, I guess, Martin. You're in New York. There, I know that you know there 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 obviously was a London Irish game there last year, but now London Irish are no longer in the uh, in the Aviva Premiership. You know what? How is that whole scenario going to play out? There was supposedly going to be you know three years worth of games, but it all seems like it's on hold again. And in it, no, and in it, well, I mean, I don't know fully, but in an interesting twist of fate which has never ever happened before the guardian has reported twice that the game is on hold and it's apparently wrong <laughs> it's i saw my colleague paul reese write that and i got straight on to premier rugby and i'm irish and said, i've got a statement that's going on huh. they, they, uh, the statement of premier rugby got the press officer of premier rugby got got back to me within seconds saying no that's very much still happening we're just determining the teams um I also saw Mike McCarthy from the uh, Legacy Agency this week, and he said the same thing. I still on just So I don't know. I don't know the inside politics on it. That's my full-time beat. Yeah. I don't. I don't quite know why Reese has twice said it's on hold. But the two people who two bodies who organise it are telling me it's happening in March, working out which team it'll be, and if Irish come back up next season, it'll be Irish again. Huh. Yeah, I I always got the gist that it wasn't so much about London Irish. They were just using that. Again, this is kind of a, a fallacy that people have that all Irish Americans will turn out to anything with the word Irish in it, which isn't <laughs> true. You know. So um but I think it's more Saracens driven than London Irish. And I could see where Saracens would have a vested interest in keeping that game going and trying to, to build their brand here in the US. They have an interest, definitely. They think come over here a lot, but they were not putting out very enthusiastic signals around the game last mm. this year. The strongest, not very happy person was McCall, who's director of rugby, who had a reason to not like the disruption. But Saris were not pushing it at all. It wasn't a Saris project. It was definitely an Irish one. Interesting. Um, 
Hey. They said, Mark McCafferty said at the time that Sarri would be back if Irish went down. And this would be the same. So I'm just trying to find out. Last question from me, guys. Uh, Curtis, you've covered a little bit of this, but uh, of course, noise about too long being interested in coming in and the fun pro rugby tweet about them basically saying, oh, that's news to us. <laughs> we would love to know about that. Um, anything further on that? or No, <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I'm, what Toulon is trying to do is basically take their players that need game time and get them game time in different situations and possibly expand their brand at the same time. It's, it wouldn't be a bad idea if they did that in pro rugby, but there's no way that it could work financially unless Toulon was going to foot the bill for everybody. So, um, you know, I think a good idea, but I don't see it happening. Um, Oh, Martin, were you going to say something? Just going to say that Steve Lewis at pro rugby told me for the interview the other month, the academy player, Martin, you're just breaking up. Can you just repeat that again? Yeah, I went, when I talked to Steve Lewis at Pro, Pro Rugby, what was it, last month, uh, for the sort of playing review, he told me that academy players in, in England and France who don't have much to do in those months, as Toulon was saying, were a definite possible source of players mm. for expansion. So that, you know, that, that was a little, a little uh, chimed in my head when you read the two things, in between laughing, disbelieving. Yeah, yeah, and and just from my end, I, my understanding is that you know the, the 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 hope is two teams in Canada. I know that the Toronto team is is I, someone was telling me ninety five percent ready or ready to go, ninety five percent set, but we're not sure what the the holdoff is. I I, ha, I don't actually know who necessarily would be involved in a Vancouver run team. I know that Rugby Canada certainly has interests of their own in terms of how those teams are run, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it all sounds like things are pushing towards there, and I guess we'll see how things play out. Yep. All right, guys, uh, thanks for joining us. As always, folks, you can uh, find Martin on Twitter. Is it, Martin, tell me what your Twitter handle is. Is it just Martin Pengelly? At Martin Pengelly, yes. There we go. And at This Amer Rugby is Curtis. You can find them both online at The Guardian at thisisamericanrugby.com. I'm at Rising Action. And, of course, facebook.com slash try and tackle is the best place to find all my work. Fellas, great having you here. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Province Sports Try and Tackle podcast with your host, Province Sports Mobile Editor Patrick Johnston. Find this and other great sports podcasts in iTunes or subscribe using your favorite podcast app by clicking the links available on theprovincepodcasts.com. Mm-hmm.